Hello, and welcome to Listed, a Forbes podcast about people, money, and power. I'm your co-host, Maggie McGrath. And I'm your other co-host, Abe Brown. And today, we're talking about the people we want to be, the top-earning podcasters. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Five, six, seven, eight. So I think that the secret to being a top-earning podcaster is actually to be a dynamic duo, like us. The best pods are a great hang, right? I love my alone time as much as the next person, but, you know, generally you want to hang with other people. I certainly do. I'm, I'm an extrovert. <laughs> but rather than talk about us, which I know you would love to do. I could do it all day. Who is your favorite dynamic duo? <laughs> uh, this was a pretty easy choice for me. It is, um, it's actually a very big sentimental favorite, one very close to my heart. I have a clip uh, from this duo uh, for you now. We have uh, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find out. I want you to tell me the names of the fellas on the St. Louis team. I'm telling you, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. So that, of course, is... Abbott and Costello. Bud Abbott and Lou Costello, a pair of comedians who came up um, on the vaudeville circuit in the 30s. They had their own radio show, which I, you know, is podcasting before podcasting. And then, you know, they had a, um, many successful movies, probably close to two dozen, and they had their own television show. I grew up on uh, on their comedies. Their movies are still some of the ones that I've rewatched the most in my life. And their legacy really lives on in a really... A tremendous way. Jerry Seinfeld often holds them up as people who inspired him. He's on several TV specials about them. Quentin Tarantino says Abner Costello meets Frankenstein is his one of his favorite movies. And you can see it like Tarantino loves to subvert. These are my dynamic duo that um, have a very special place in my heart. Who is who is your dynamic duo? That you, that you want to tell us about? I really struggled with this, actually. Because, oh, okay. So you had the opposite problem. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of duos. Well, I was trying to be like probably a little too clever for my own good. I was thinking like, who are some sports duos who made me happy? So like Carson Wentz and Zach Ertz made me happy because on the Eagles, they are a dynamic duo, QB to tight end. Then I was thinking, well, maybe I should go on theme. We're Forbes. So Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, who we've oh, talked about before. Okay. That's a little boring. But I've learned you can't deny true love. And my ultimate favorite dynamic duo is Meredith Grey and Christina Yang from Grey's Anatomy. Abe is nodding silently. You've never seen the show. Yeah, Yeah, you've never never seen the show, show, have you? Okay, well, they're best friends on the show. I, alongside my best friend Meg, hey Meg, have been watching the show together for the last like 15 years. I haven't missed an episode. Um, Meredith and Christina really support each other in the show in the same way that Meg and I have, I think, supported each other over the years. It's just one of my favorite fictional relationships. And I think we have a clip right now. You are a gifted surgeon with an extraordinary mind. Don't let what he wants eclipse what you need. He's very dreamy, but he is not the sun. You are. They're each other's person. Yeah, no, I, 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 I get it. I get it. Um, you know what's even better than a dynamic duo, Mags? A terrific trio. That's some great alliteration, and you're absolutely correct. So let's get one more person in the pod studio with us today. It's going to be Ariel Shapiro, the reporter behind this year's new top-earning podcasters list. Hi, Ariel. Hey, guys. How are you doing? Thanks for being here. 
Thank you for having me. You are a media and entertainment reporter here at Forbes. What prompted you to do a top earning podcaster list? So um, I also work on the uh, highest earning comedians list. And when I was reporting that out over the summer, um, Joe Rogan was a name that kept coming up and everyone was saying he's making tons of money off his podcast. And I just like didn't know how to approach it. Um, And so... But it was something that I wanted to keep looking into. And I'd reached out to his people and like, you know, they, they weren't going to talk about it. Um, generally, people don't like when you reach out and just say, hey, how much money are you making? Oh, um, shocked. I'm yeah, shocked of course. to hear that. Um, None of us here have ever done that before. Naturally. So I started talking to people in the industry uh, over the fall. Um, and the first thing was learning about the economics of podcasting and how people made money from podcasting. Um, and what the kind of reasonable range was that you could be making from that. Um, And so the number one thing is ad revenue. Um, Mm -hmm. That was something Mm -hmm. that... Ad revenue. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Not dissimilar from uh, the old school news business. Um, So (laughs) um, because most podcasts are not subscription-based. They're not, you know, there are some, uh, like Luminary launched this year, which is kind of like the Netflix of podcasting where they have all these shows. Um, Basically, you can access all of their shows for a monthly fee. Um, But that's the exception rather than the norm. Then some of them also do live tours that they can then turn into podcast episodes. So they sort of double down on on that. And then there's also merchandise. Merch. Merch is is lucrative. Um, And uh, some of them even have... um, like premium memberships or fan clubs that people will pay. Um, wow. Make, that includes some merch, but sometimes it just includes extra podcast episodes, that kind of thing. I'm not going to let us go on live tour anytime soon. So if we wanted to focus on our ad revenue, how do we access millions of dollars? How do the top earning shows do it? First of all, you need to own your podcast. That's then- fine. I quit. <laughs> um, so then you can, aside from a payout that you have to make to an ad buyer, you get to keep all that money that you're getting. Um, if they're at a certain threshold, like podcasts kind of need to make about 750,000 downloads per episode in order to get those highest ad rates. Um, and then once they do... Uh, Where do we rank in that, Reva? Reva is not permitted to disclose that information. <laughs> so 750 downloads per episode. 750,000 downloads Sorry, per episode. That, that. Yeah, no, yes. So a lot. It's a lot. And very, very, very few podcasts meet that threshold. Um, It's really what maybe like the top, maybe the top 50, Um, probably less than that. But basically the ones on this list. Oh, the ones on this list get even even more. A totally insane amount. Um, So can you quantify what totally insane amount means? Well, actually, so here's one that's not that's not on the list that that caused me a little bit of trouble, um, but that gets a lot is uh, This American Life. They put out, you know, about two episodes a month and each one gets 10 million downloads each. Wow. Um, but they're not on the list because they put out two episodes a month. Um, and um. so the ones that you see on this list are have pretty heavy output. Like Joe Rogan puts out like 23, 24 a month alone. Um, his are really easy to produce. He's just doing a talk show um, that's different than This American Life, which is a whole production reporting stories, all you know, all that. It's just, there's a reason why they only do two. But everyone on the list is putting out episodes multiple times a week. Um, so that's what really kind of contributes to that high download rate. So it doesn't mean that each episode is necessarily the most downloaded episode out there. Um, they're just 
putting a lot of content out there that people can listen to. It's the overall like catalog, basically. Exactly. Okay, Earl, count us down. Who are the top five earning podcasters and what do we need to know about them? So uh, number five is Bill Simmons, um, who owns the Ringer Network and has his own podcast within that. It's the biggest show within the podcast network. And that show alone, we estimated, brings in $7 million a year. He's not going to be on the list next year because uh, Spotify recently purchased the Ringer, which includes the podcast network in addition to their other assets. And um, so he will be making plenty of money. He's going to cash out really big this year. So we're not crying for Bill Simmons. No, he's going to be okay. He just, for the purposes of our list, you know, we're looking at podcasters who are consistently making money through podcasting. Got it. That's not really going to be the case with Bill Simmons anymore. Um, and it's also the same reason why we don't have Alex Bloomberg from Gimlet. Um, otherwise he would trounce everybody. Alex Bloomberg, of course, is the co-founder of Gimlet, which Spotify bought for a reported $200 million last year. Um, and I know Abe is a big Bill Simmons fan. Love Bill Simmons. I have about five different Ringer pods on my phone. They're my favorite pods. Uh, talk about great hangs, just every single one of them. I will say, actually, Bill Simmons, I don't subscribe to his. I do the rewatchables and the big picture and... The Press Box and Ringer Dish and The Watch. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm Ringer addicted. I'm a Ringer. Because The Ringer is, su- is such an expansive operation just beyond the podcasting. For sure. Um, it's, it's a really new thing for Spotify to kind of experiment with. And, you know, they have plenty of market cap to experiment with. Zach O'Malley Greenberg um, wrote about this, how they actually need to become less reliant on uh, the music industry. And for them, it's a better bet to to diversify. And The Ringer is a really good example of how they're trying to do that. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, Especially because I like music better. <laughs> that's my dirty little secret. Um, I used to be, in, I used to listen to podcasts to calm down. And ever since I did this story, I like need a break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you need some distance from the thing yeah, that you're doing all the yeah, time. Exactly. So, I, I do yeah. like the person who's number four on this list. I'm a real big fan of his wife, but okay. as a couple, they're pretty good. Can you tell us about number four? So number four is Dax Shepard, um, who hosts Armchair Expert. Um, and he made $9 million last year from the podcast. And again, those other revenue streams we were talking about touring, merch, that kind of thing. Um, merch. And so he's a really good example of... I love of that word. It's a, such a great merch word. Merch is a great word. Maddie came in a couple of weeks ago, delighted me in, it, <laughs> in telling me about it, and I'm still delighted. She did suggest that we sell merch, and then Abe said I need Maggie merch, and I, I don't know how I feel about that. But Dak Shepard merch, maybe I would feel better about. Okay. All right. There, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I, I would prefer Kristen Bell merch, but that's fine. Fair. Um, fair. Veronica Mars merch, which I own. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, so he's a really good example of he only launched his podcast in 2018 um, and it rapidly grew. And part of that is because he and to a certain extent, like everyone else on this list, was already famous before mm-hmm. launching his podcast. So, I mean, that seems to be one of the points, right? You need to you need to own your pod, which I totally get. But you can't, unless you have an audience, it's very hard to wander out into the wilderness and emerge with a top earning pod, right? It is very hard. There have been examples, not for this year, but there was one really successful podcast called Lore. Um, it was right. much, it was much bigger a couple of years ago. Aaron Mankey, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and so he was, you know, totally native to the medium. Um, but he got going pretty early too, yes. right? Back when the, you had a a field, not a forest of pods out there. So, yeah. So, Lore is this podcast about, um, that delves into various, like, 
creepy folk tales. Um, it was totally native to the medium, and it got really successful. Um, it was turned into an Amazon Prime series. Uh, it no longer is an Amazon Prime series, and it no longer really lives in the upper echelons of uh, podcasting. Um, but it doesn't. It's a good example of how someone can grow natively um, within within podcasting. Who's number three? Number three is Dave Ramsey, who is someone I had never heard of until I was looking at podcasts. Um, I don't know if you guys have. I have because I covered personal finance for it was my first job and it was my also first beat here at Forbes. So I'm familiar with his advice. Okay, that is amazing. Um, He is. uh, Don't spend any money. Yeah, don't spend any money. (laughs) I'll, I'll I'll do the pod myself. He's very like. Totally no-nonsense, old-school radio call-in show. Um, He's also the only one who came from radio and then went to— And Sorry, he's the only one who on this list who started in radio. Um, And so he's in smaller markets. He's not, you know, in New York City or L.A., but he is in places like Kalamazoo and San Antonio. Um, And he just has this massive following. And between the radio show and the podcast— he claims that he has 15 million listeners a week. Um, and he also is a good example of how volume brings in the downloads because he turns every single two-hour show into three-hour, sorry, into three 40-minute um, podcasts. Mm. So he's got, um, you know, like 70 up there a month on on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. So is the show all personal finance or is it Dave pontificating on life? It's, 80% finance, 20% life. Actually, we have a clip that's a really good example of how he really brings the two together. Oh, great. Let's hear it. My husband and I make um, combined about 115000 a year. And the only debt we have is a stupid debt, but we actually do use it quite a bit. Is a, We owe 16000 roughly on a travel trailer, and we want to pay that off. And uh, what is the family willing to do to get it paid off in order to keep this toy? Oh, I mean, I'm willing to do whatever it takes only because I see so much joy in what my goals are. How fast doing are right you going to have it paid off? It's 16000 you make 115 How fast do you pay that off? Probably in six months. That's good. Okay. And if you can do that and keep the horseback lessons, then, then get it done. I understand why people identify and really appreciate his advice. I graduated with north of $60,000 in student debt. I used part of his debt snowball method to pay down some of the lower interest rates first to get some quick, easy wins before I attacked the higher interest rate ones. Getting out of debt is a really empowering feeling. And like, I, I understand why he has such an audience. He really does. And he really reaches people on a personal level in a way that other kinds of business news doesn't always. Um, you know, CNBC is not talking to people about how to pay down their, what we, you know, on a macro level, might consider smaller loans. Mm-hmm. So, like in the clip, you know, he's talking about an amount of debt that's what, like sixteen thousand um, dollars. That's very different mm-hmm. uh, than than what we usually see. And so he um, and he reaches people in parts of the country that you know don't necessarily want to listen to Planet Money, right? And you know, don't necessarily want to listen to those flagship NPR programs. Um, and look, the proof is in his earnings. He got ten million dollars last year just from the podcast and the business again, is more expensive than that. He has the radio side of it. He also has, you know, he 
sells classes and budgeting tools. Mm-hmm. And, like, he has an app. I mean, there's just so many other things. And this podcast is just how he reaches out to people. Well, number two on our list has an even more impressive little empire going. Tell us about them. Um, so number two, um, this is uh, Karen Kilgriff and Georgia Hardstark, who host My Favorite Murder. Um, and they're the ones I profiled for the piece. Uh, they, Very nicely done, by the way. Thank you. Um, and thank you, Abe, kind editor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, So um, they started their podcast in 2016. Um, and they are by far the most successful post-serial true crime podcast. So um, anyway, they've been really successful. And the reason why they've been so successful is because they're blending these two absolutely massive genres, which is true crime and comedy. Um, And it's what totally sets them apart from people in either genre. Um, And that's why they are able to, first of all, they're they're telling me, I'm not a true crime person, but like my mom is. And the second I published the story, she was like, how do I access podcasts? How do I listen to this podcast? I want to hear oh, about the murders. Oh, they speak to your mom. Oh, okay. yeah. Oh, no. They're like... So your like, mom's a murderino. Oh, Babs is like a murderino in training. Oh, like Babs. She's, yeah, she's their, um, she's their target audience. Um, because she wants to listen to it, but she wants to listen to it in a fun way. And that's right. what they do is they talk about these murders. You know, it's not my version of fun, but they're really funny about it. You know, Karen has a stand-up background. Um, Georgia was a host for the cooking channel. Like, again, they're both not unknowns going into this, but they also weren't household names. You know, before we sat down today, did did my homework, I, I listened to some of their pods, and l- they're in a very heavily crowded field, right? But you're you're going there for the hang, right? You If you are, if you're a murderino, you want to hang out with Georgia and Karen. Exactly. And, you know, I don't think I'm going to do it every week, but damn, they've got plenty of other people who really want to hang out with them. $15 million worth. I think we have a clip. Uh, let's Let's listen. This is about the murder of Evelyn Nesbitt's former lover, which I thought would be like in um, Abe's cultural strike zone because you seem to like like turn of the century nonsense. But I could be wrong about that. (laughs) So this woman, Evelyn Nesbitt, was born uh, actually Florence Evelyn Nesbitt in Tarentum, Pennsylvania. Just let us know how let us know how you I will. that up. You will. Um, on Christmas Day, 1884, although people aren't sure if that was the year because her mother faked her uh, age to make her seem older for the labor laws. Oh, um, that's a first. Old, yeah. So she might actually be younger than that. Um, she was um, declared the most beautiful baby ever to have been born in that county. Doubt it. Uh, <laughs> So doubt it. And also probably not that hard. Like, um, yeah, I mean, back then. Yeah. Babies were fucking. They're all splotchy and yeah, shit. You so you'd, if you just had one that was like kind of OK in the face, <laughs> they'd be like unbelievable. Put her up on the pedestal. Um, they literally had a pedestal in the middle of town. <laughs> yeah. Uh, OK, so I think that was kind of a funny clip, though, because it gets to showing how off topic they get, which is something you absolutely hate. Yeah, well, I already told you this, but for our audience, I live in a sixth floor walk up in the East 60s and I put an episode on. I walked down my stairs out the door down First Avenue and I kept walking, walking, walking. I hit 57th Street. I turn around. I go to Second Avenue. I come back. I go back to my doorstep. This is like an 18 minute walk. Yeah, you're already boring me. What happens? Well, I'm copying their way of meandering and conversation. It took 18 minutes for them to get to the point of the episode, which I just I don't have time for that. I think the point of that is this is you're not listening to their first pause. They have their audience built in. They know their audience wants to hang out with them. And that's what they're doing it it's purposeful they're not 
doing a bad job or doing it poorly. They're doing, they're doing a specific routine, a specific act. Yeah, totally. I mean, look, they talk about their personal lives and they talk about pop culture and, you know, they front load it with ads and then they get to the then they get to the murders like 20 minutes in. But it works. People stick around for it. And, you know, even half of their they do these mini episodes that are like fan letter write ins and they're not fan letters that are like, hmm. we love you so much. They're like, listen to the listen to this crazy story that I heard. I actually really liked the minisodes because I think the engagement of their audience is so interesting. It's like this thing happened in my town and I need you to hear about it. And that's a really compelling host audience relationship. I, I'm that I'm legitimately fascinated by. Yeah, absolutely. Look, their 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 fans are totally devoted. They have this fan club that they're able to charge $40 a year for. And people get like a tote bag, exclusive episodes, and early access to tickets, not even free tickets. So to their shows. And they have more than 55,000 people. People are really into these shows that don't have that professional veneer. They want something that sounds really naturalistic. They're speaking to their audience, which is very similar to the number one person on our list, who is Joe Rogan, um, who has a very loyal fan base. Um, he has claimed that he has as many as 190 million downloads a month. Ooh. Even if that's not the case. Wait, um, I gather you don't think it is? I think that's probably a little high. <laughs> it's possible he's including YouTube views in that, mm. and he has lots of YouTube views as well. Um, but even without that, he has the number one podcast in the country. Edison has said it. Um, Apple has said it. Like, it's it's undisputed. And he doesn't, aside from his 190 million download claim, he doesn't report his numbers anywhere. Um, and he just sort of maintains his own business, has his own relationships with advertisers. Um, and so he, and he's managed to do something really remarkable, which is that he can speak to you know, Karen and George's crowd, and he could speak to Dave Ramsey's crowd. Like, he is blue state, he is red state, he is purple state. People listen to him all over. And it also is due to the fact that he brings on such a huge variety of guests. You know, he has Bernie Sanders, and he also has Alex Jones twice. And, you know, and then he has yes. MMA. <laughs> and then he has <laughs> MMA fighters. And then he has just, like, his buddies, you know, from the stand-up comedy world. Like, he is such a wide variety that it's topical, but it's also evergreen. Um, and he puts out 23 episodes a month. Is he a podcast shock jock? I wouldn't call him a shock jock. I mean, look, he still is... Of all of the people on this list, he is the most like Howard Stern, and people have drawn that comparison a lot. Yes. I mean, when I was editing your piece, that's what he certainly reminded me of. Yes. And he can be—but I don't—also don't think that he's controversial for the sake of being controversial. So that means that when he does express his opinion or put his support behind a person or a cause, he has tremendous influence because he has such a huge audience, right? I think we actually have a clip that shows that. He was interviewing New York Times columnist Barry Weiss, and they're talking about the Democratic primary candidates. And what was said ended up creating headlines that went viral. Should we cue it? Sure. Let's go for it. But who are you going to vote for in the primary? I think I think I'll probably vote for Bernie. Interesting. Yeah. Because I, like, I think Bernie and Tulsi together would be a fucking devastating combination. I really do. I don't know if they'd ever work out together. I don't know, I don't know if that's possible. But I think them together might work. That might work. That might get enough people to go, you know what? This is all just too fucking crazy. Let's, let's try something different. And what do you make of the people that are speculating that Tulsi's going to run as a third party or all she's that? She's not going to. Okay. I don't think she's going to. So that clip we just heard, that 
really made the rounds on social media, in the media. It was all the headlines were Joe Rogan endorses Bernie. It, it wasn't just a podcast conversation. It became its own news cycle. And does that speak to his reach? And like, t- Tell us what that means. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Bernie immediately embraced it and turned it into, took that clip and turned it into a tweet. And they basically called an endorsement. And you could hear it wasn't like a full-throated endorsement. It was better than the New York Times endorsement, which in the New York Times, of course, endorsed <laughs> two people and couldn't make up his mind. At least Joe Rogan can make up his mind and say something interesting. But look, that endorsement meant a lot more than the New York Times For one. sure. And, yeah. and, you know, and the headlines you would see was, you know, did, did Bernie get his biggest endorsement yet? And the answer is probably yes. It's the number one podcast in the country. The, that's the coveted. That, that's... There was a time that the number one podcast in the country, a political endorsement or even just saying, I'm going to vote for this person. So whether or not we call it an endorsement wouldn't have made much of a splash. But I think a lot has changed over the last number of years. How do we go from podcasting being this niche form of media to now super mainstream and the number one podcaster in the country saying something nice about Bernie Sanders produces a news cycle? So obviously smartphones have been with us for a while, but... Podcast- Everybody, hold up your smartphones. <laughs> yes. Um, but po- podcasting has gone through phases. So it made a splash when it first started. And that's when Joe Rogan started. He was in the initial wave of comedian podcasters and in when 2009. was that? 2009. Yeah. So that was like with Mark Marin and Adam Carolla. Um, and they're both still quite successful, uh, but they, they're, they you know, not even close to Joe Rogan in then terms of their reach. Da- then there's the Dark Ages. Then yeah, then there's then there's the the low times, and um, it really started picking up again around 2014, 2015. This was serial, right? That was serial, and mm-hmm. and that goes back to the true crime factor. Is that really brought the idea of podcasting as drama um, into into the mix? Um, but at the same time, you know, people just started consuming more podcasts. Advertisers started spending more podcasts because people were consuming more podcasts, and it's this sort of self-feeding cycle. And so also in terms of the endorsement, um, it's very different coming from someone like Joe Rogan, who sounds like the people that listen to him. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, that's, that's, it's a very, it's not, you know, it's not a thousand word essay from the New York Times on two different candidates that they could possibly endorse. It's, it's very off the cuff. It's very kind of visceral and emotional. And that, in a way, I think, has more impact than something that, you know, can feel a little academic. But what's interesting is political podcasts don't always bring in a ton of ad revenue because they are controversial. So is this comment going to hurt Joe Rogan's earnings? Probably not. Almost certainly not. Um, I think that he... Even if he says he likes Bernie Sanders, he's not playing to one side or the other. He had Ben Shapiro on. He had Bernie Sanders on. Like, he'll have anyone on and talk to them. And I think that's what his listeners really respect about him. And he's also not without his controversy. I mean, he's been accused of making transphobic comments about um, about an MMA fighter. And, you know, he's spoken to that recently, saying that he was taken out of context, that he supports the trans community. Um, but the point is, is that he's broad in a way that very few other podcasters who talk about politics are. Well, I think it's fair to say to be continued and it will be interesting. Yes, we shall see. Segments? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Segments are our chance to have a little fun with the list. We're going to put you on the spot. 
My favorite segment, it's something called the Robinson Crusoe Award. Which podcaster, and it doesn't have to be one of these top five, would you choose to be stranded with if you were stranded on a deserted island? Ooh, okay. Um, oh, I know. I would want to hang on a deserted island <laughs> with um, Holly Fry from Stuff I Missed in History Class, uh, which is my favorite podcast. Um, and because she knows all these stories from history, she can entertain me while we're <laughs> either thriving or slowly dying on the island. Um, so that would be my number one. Um, number two might be Brian Lehrer because I just love, I'm just like a devoted Brian Lehrer fan. But also, what would we talk about if we didn't know what the politics of the day were? Maggie, who are you, who, who, who are you on this island? Who are you with? I feel like one of the like psychology advice um, podcasts that are super successful, like Esther Perel. I think like if I am stuck on a deserted island, I need a therapist. Sure. <laughs> yes. And and when you come back from the island as well, probably, I would assume. I have a therapist. She's great. So if I can't be, but she doesn't have a podcast. So if I can't be stranded with her, I'm picking Esther Perel. Abe, what about you? Uh, I'm going with two ringer guys. I'm going with Andy Greenwald and Chris Ryan. They're the hosts of The Watch. Uh, that is definitely one of the pods I listen to the most. But I don't know what would happen if you put the two of them on an island in which they couldn't consume mass amounts of television and pop culture. They they might starve because of that sooner than starving out of food or water. Uh, I don't know how. Hopefully we'd make it. That's the thing. You'd have to have enough to talk about from the material you well, get from the island. Theoretically, all these people can talk. So they, they would at least, you know, keep us a little amused. All I don't right. know. I think the survival strategy, I, maybe we all should have gone with, like, chefs and people who know how to cook and You're always trying food. to be on an island with a chef. Chefs are prissy prima donnas. Like, we got, does Bear Grylls have a pod? He must have a pod. I don't know. And if he doesn't, fuck it, I'm leaving Forbes. I'm going to make that a pod. Ariel, you're almost done with this podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. But before you go, I'd like, I, I want all of us to give uh, listeners and each other a pod rec, one that we haven't already talked about. Okay, so my, like, chill-out podcast um, is Who Weekly. Um, it's hosted by Bobby Finger and Lindsay Weber, um, and it's specifically about, it's celebrity news, but specifically about celebrities who, like, you know their face, but you don't know their name. Uh -huh. Like, they're called Who's, um, and they are just so, so funny. They, those are the people that I want to hang out with. When people are coming to hang, like, I'm coming to hang. Um, so if you just, like, if you just want the juicy goss, like that's the right. juicy, who, the the juicy goss. If you want the tea, if you want the tea, the tea, the tea okay. listen, listen to Who Weekly. Um, they also have the best Collins, and um, yeah, I love them. The Who Weekly, Abe. What's your recommendation? I've got a pod that has tea drinking of a totally different sort. It's called Victoros Victorosity. It is a uh, radio serial, and it imagines a alternative future in which um, Victoria, England has kind of gone on for forever and it's become this steampunky, high tech. It is incredibly, it's incredibly clever and very funny and very knowing. And, you know, it's a spoof of Sherlock Holmes and all those stories that we know and love. And, you know, for instance, Queen Victoria is now a, you know, thrice dead robot who has absorbed Albert into her and they have and Victoria and Albert have conversations with each other. It's very funny. I, I really like it quite a lot. Neither of you look like you're going to download Victoriosity uh, 
tonight. No, but this does cut to my theory that you love turn of the century nonsense. <laughs> yes, yes, it is true. Apparently, uh, Maggie, what do you got? My favorite podcast is Good One Podcast. It's a podcast from Vulture. Um, Vulture senior editor Jesse David Fox covers comedy, and he interviews comedians about their jokes and their sets. It usually starts off with him playing that set, and then they dissect the word choice and the cadence and what made it funny. How did this evolve in stand-up? It is a comedy nerds podcast, but I like it because good comedy is often good writing. So for me as a writer, I find that there's a lot to learn in that. And the Nikki Glaser episode where she talks about uh, roasting and like being at the— Alec Baldwin roast and some of those other roasts and how she constructs those very quick punches. It was, I was laughing on the subway and of course with earbuds in and laughing to yourself, you look a little insane, but I will look insane for a good one podcast. Maggie, you have already recommended that to me and it's on my list. So when (laughs) I can listen to podcasts again, emotionally, I will listen to good one. I've been looking forward to that. Well, actually maybe start with listed. Oh, well, obviously, I mean, the best podcast out there. Of course. Ariel, that was wonderful advice and wonderful analysis today. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you guys so much. Well, I don't know about you, Abe, but I'm ready to go practice my ad reading voice. Well, I have a voice for you. Oh, boy. And I will read any ad you'd like in this voice. Oh, no. It's last but not least. I don't know who's going to buy that, but someone will. Someone will. Okay, it's our chance to give some love to another list on the internet. Abe, what do you got for me today? Well, we opened this episode talking about duos we love. We spent a lot of time talking about what makes podcasters like Karen and Georgia on My Favorite Murder success, their chemistry, their relationship. I want to end today's episode talking about what happens when relationships end. I have a list from Vogue about high-profile celebrity divorces. Mm. Some of these are classic tales of woe that we know really well. Uh, Guy Ritchie and Madonna, Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston, Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. Apparently, if it's hard to stay married and stay in the Church of Scientology. Yes, that's <laughs> widely reported. Uh, a few on the list were couples that I had forgotten totally about. Meg Ryan and Dennis Quaid. Ryan Philippe and Reese Witherspoon. How can you forget that? Their kids look both like both of them. Uh, apparently, you're paying attention to their kids much more than I am. I follow Reese on Instagram. Uh, Miranda Lambert and Blake Shelton. How, that was like all over People Magazine. I guess you don't subscribe to People Magazine. Uh, yeah, guess not. Uh, and there are, and then there are some marriages that just didn't last very long. Nick Cage is making a habit of this. He had an 108-day marriage to Lisa Marie Presley and a four-day-long marriage to a makeup artist named Erica Kroike. Uh, Elizabeth Moss and Fred Armisen made it a whole eight months. And now, very recently, Pamela Anderson ended her third marriage and will shortly begin on what is her fourth divorce after a 12-day union with Hollywood producer John Peters. They first met back in the 80s, perhaps fittingly enough, at the Playboy Mansion. You know, a friend Where of- all the fun things happen not precisely marriage not where i was going with that i was just gonna say a friend of a friend has a rule that when two people break up they better not better not get back together unless they have a really good reason to do so it sounds like pamela did not have a good reason to get back with that ex that's all we have for today thank you so much for listening to this episode of listed thanks very much to our guest ariel shapiro she's making listed an even bigger pod success just by being on this one with us There will be links in the show notes to all of Ariel's coverage. So if you want to read her full story on My Favorite Murder, check those out. 
And you can help us rake in millions of pod dollars by subscribing to Listed on CastBox, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. Keep those ratings and reviews coming. We want to be number one. I'm your co-host, Maggie McGrath, editor of Forbes Women. I'm your other co-host, Abe Brown, senior editor at Forbes. Listed as a spoke media production. Kieran Meadows records with us in studio. And our producer is Reva Goldberg. Our theme song is composed and performed by Will Short. Our production team is Caroline Hamilton, John Villalobos, and Will Short at Spoke Media. And thank you to Travis Collins, Kyle Kramer, Randall Lane, and Dario Floretan here at Forbes. We're going to put you to work at the merch table at all future live tapings of Listed. See you next week. Bye. Maggie, how much money do you make? $30 million. Wait, why do you earn more than I do? (laughs) We're fixing the pay gap here at Forbes, Abe. No one told you?